Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Gil Hunter, the Assistant Vice President of Retention and Graduation at Eastern Kentucky University. Welcome, Gil. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me today. Gil is an English professor turned administrator, so he's gone to the dark side, with leadership positions as an interim dean, and now he's the assistant vice president. He focuses on improving retention and graduation rates. I met Gil at the Leadership and Higher Education Conference recently, and he presented on the metrics and interventions that he uses to inform his retention work. I was so impressed with how intentional and tactical his methodology is, and I wanted to bring him here today to share his expertise with our listeners. So, Gil, let's start with the opening questions that you asked our group at your session at the conference. You asked us, how do you collect your retention numbers? Who sees them? And what do you do with them? Well, there was this long pause. Then a a couple brave hands went up, and the answers were sort of along the lines of, Someone sends out a retention port after fall consensus, and I look at it. Somebody else said something like, oh, I work in admissions, or I work in institutional research. I I put reports together. That's my retention work. And I remember when you were asking those questions, I kept thinking, oh, I just sigh with relief if the numbers are at or above national levels. And then I panic if they dip. So tell us what this scenario was like for you when you first started your retention role at Eastern Kentucky University, and how did you create the infrastructure to affect significant change? Sure. Well, it's a great question and a great place to start, and, and I appreciated meeting you at that conference as well and, and having a great conversation with lots of people at the conference. And in truth, that long pause that you referenced there um, didn't really fill me with anticipation, I guess, because I expected it, but I also expected people to have much better answers than I was able to provide in that session because retention work is something that's new to me. And I say new to me, I'm in my sixth year out of seven years as an administrator doing this retention work, but I am definitely learning on the fly all the time. And I think a lot of people are in that same position. So to answer your more direct question, I guess, the best way I can think of my opening kind of experience in this role was was kind of like what, and I assume it's the true story, but kind of like what President Kennedy experienced his first day in the White House. He sat down in the Oval Office at that desk and his executive assistant walked in and I don't remember what her name was when I read his biography, but he said, okay, Mrs. Smith, what am I supposed to do now? And she told him, don't worry, Mr. Kennedy, the work will find you. And then I've thought about that a lot because when I got the job, my instinct as an English faculty member, somebody who had spent a career in words, my instinct was I need to learn the data. I need to find the gaps and I want to help students. And the guidance I received real quickly from my supervisor, the vice president of student success at the time, and the person who had been in the role kind of before me was work with the people engaged in the work. It's not about the data. It's about the work. And so when you reference, Sarah, that I built an infrastructure, it's a really great example of it's not me, it's we, because it does take an entire campus pulling in the same direction, a campus-wide commitment to student success and retention to make retention work happen. It can happen in pockets, 
but you don't get results when it happens in pockets. So it really is a culture, a mindset, and a commitment to a mission. And that's what we do at EKU really, really well is remain focused on our mission and committed to it. And we put students first. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And you also said something else at the conference that really really ties in nicely to what you just said. You said to us, retention numbers are not retention work. The numbers only describe retention work outcomes, and then they identify the future retention work. So how do you use the numbers, the data to guide your future work? In other words, how do all those numbers inform, you know, everyday tactics and everyday work activities? Another good question. And and I guess for people like me that were entering into this work and not knowing really what retention was other than keeping students in school, it's important to understand how we measure retention. And technically and, and specifically, we're required to report on retention for the university and on the state level for the first year and then for the second year. So we report on the GRS, the Graduate Records Survey, cohort of students. That's all first-time, full-time, baccalaureate degree-seeking students. We report on their retention through their first year and then into their second year or through their second year. And at EKU, we're all comfortable with those numbers and kind of our strategies for tracking and reporting on those numbers. Because basically, when we get students to a third fall, so to start their quote unquote junior year, though a lot of our students have kind of various hours there by the time they get to their third fall, when we get those students back for their third fall, they graduate at basically 100%. And so they may not always graduate in four years, but they will graduate at basically 100%. So, so we track that retention over those first two years. So those numbers are what we focus on and we compare one year to the next. We compare cohorts within that overall GRS cohort of students against each other and try to close gaps. I can talk more about that if you would like me to, but we especially look at those groups of students who, I guess, historically are poorly served by higher education. And that sounds like an indictment of higher education, but we also know that uh, that when we look at things like gender, race, socioeconomic status, first-generation status, that there are marked distinctions between retention rates or among retention rates with those different populations. So we, we pay a lot of attention to those gaps and try to find strategies collaboratively across the university to close those gaps. Well, you're bringing up a really good point. You're telling us that the overall retention numbers may not tell us the full story. So tell us which specific student populations you're tracking and beyond what you've already talked about that higher ed hasn't served them well, why is it important to monitor them so intentionally? Yeah, so there are several that that were kind of, well, I guess required to report on, but then we also know at a place like Eastern Kentucky University, and it's important to understand who we are as a university, we're called EKU, Eastern Kentucky University, but we are about 25 miles from Lexington, which is considered central Kentucky, so we're definitely on the foothills of the Appalachian part of Kentucky, but in our state-defined service region. We have 22 counties, and in those 22 counties are five of the 10 poorest counties in the nation. And so we have lots of our population, not just at EKU, but in our service region, is, you know, lacks a college degree. Many of them lack a high school degree. We have lots of first-generation students that come to EKU. We have lots of Pell eligible or low income students. 
that come to EKU. We have a lot of underrepresented minority students that come to EKU, but they don't come to us from our service region by and large because our service region lacks diversity that EKU has. And then we also, I don't know if you've seen this, but EKU is in the last rankings, we're the third ranked military friendly institution in the country. So those populations that I list, Pell eligible, first gen, underrepresented minority, military dependents, and um, active duty military and veterans, those are the kinds of populations we track most of the time and most closely. And we know that when we put strategies in place that are going to help those students, they're going to help all students in part because, you know, 42% of our population's first gen. Over 50% of our population is Pell eligible. So we're we're really moving the needle on our entire population when we target those specific populations. And it could be things, and we could talk more about this as we go, but it could be things that deal with academics such as registration for classes, academic support that's available, et cetera. But it can also be things that are financial or things that are social or social emotional. You know, those kinds of interventions we can put in place and kind of build consensus around to really help all of our students. Let's focus on the population of the first-gen students. I think many college leaders out there have first-gen as probably, even if it's a small number, it's still a very well-cared-for population. Tell me about some of the specific initiatives that you are running at EKU to target and help and support the first-gen students. Absolutely. I'm, I'm proud to talk about that, actually. One of the women that works for me, she's the director of our Student Support Services Federal TRIO program. She asked me in 2018, what if we wanted EKU to be the first generation destination in Kentucky? And I said, well, let's let's talk about how to achieve that. And we started what we called a first gen task force. And it was an ad hoc committee. And here we are five years later, it has remained an ad hoc committee. We've kept together. We have um, seen the population of that committee change over time. Different people have come on board. Different people have, you know, have kind of shifted off that committee. But our work has been truly, truly laser focused on success of first generation students. So this task force took on as as its initiatives, uh, anything that would benefit first generation students. One of the first things we did was standardize our definition institutionally of what a first generation student is. We all agreed and we shared that with admissions. And we said, you know, it's if you don't have a parent or guardian that has a baccalaureate degree, then you're a first generation student. We wrote that into our application and asked students, are you first generation? And for the first time, we had what we considered accurate numbers of first generation students, but because before then we had relied on FAFSA data because the FAFSA asks if you're the first in your family to go to college. So if a student didn't complete a FAFSA, and we get a lot of students that struggle with completing a FAFSA, then we didn't know if a student was first gen or not. So this gave us really actionable information. Another thing we did was we wanted to to get other people on board with our first gen initiatives. And so we, in 2019, put on the first, what we call Gen 1 conference, And we had about 250 people from throughout the region, even from a couple adjoining states that came to an in-person conference, shared strategies. It was a professional staff and faculty-focused conference. We did it again in 2021. Difference was then with the pandemic going on, we did it virtually. We had about 95 or 100 people that joined virtually. There's some, some Zoom fatigue by that point for sure. And each time we did it, people asked us, well, what are you doing for students? And we could count 
pretty clearly the things we were doing for students at every turn. But then this year, we decided to shift our focus a little bit and do our third Gen 1 conference. But we did it on November 8th, and it was a student-facing conference for the first time. So we brought together, is about 120 first-year and second-year first-generation EKU students, and we put them through a day-long conference that focused on sessions on time management, study skills, preparation for on-campus employment if they were seeking that, um, some career readiness things they could do, ways to prepare now as first and second year students for graduate school later on, uh, networking and building your brand, uh, lots of those things that we thought kind of met students in the moment. And we were really excited to see uh, the outpouring of support for it. Lots of sessions, lots of attendance, and, uh, and we think that it's the kind of thing that's going to benefit our students going forward. Those are some great tactics, and I really appreciate that you started with trying to define the parameters around who belongs to this population. Because if you don't start with who's identifying and what makes them this population, such as first gen, you could miss some if you're not intentionally seeking that out. The second thing I wanted to highlight is that you still have ad hoc committees going five years later. Yeah, unheard of, right? (laughs) Only in higher ed would something be ad hoc for five and more years. Right. And maybe I use that word incorrectly, but it's not one of those standing university committees. We have just made the choice year after year to continue the work. Well, and I think that brings up another interesting point, though, about how retention might be an afterthought. It wasn't a standing committee. Right. That's right. You also monitor first day drops and the melt during opening weeks of the semesters. So what do you do when a student falls off in the early days of the semester? What kind of interventions? What do you do to kind of pull them back in? Uh, Well, Sarah, what we do and what we need to do might not be the same thing in this case. Um, What we do is we track those students pretty well, (laughs) which is an improvement over what it used to be over our our previous practice. Our enrollment numbers would kind of be slippery as we uh, saw students withdrawing and, you know, we didn't really know where they had gone. And we didn't know if they were just not showing up to class, if they were staying in their residence hall. We didn't know what was going on with them. And so uh, a couple of us in my student success area of the university did some investigating and we found on the registrar's website uh, several years ago now directions for students who wanted to withdraw and i'm going to quote only one word from those directions because the registrar's website told students to withdraw simply do this and then told students what they needed to do and it was a very simple process to drop all your classes we make it very hard in higher education to get into classes because we want to make sure that the computer can handle your schedule and get everything right and we want to make sure that you understand the financial commitment and you're on the hook for that. And so we want to make it at least as hard to get out of classes as it is to get into classes. And so first thing that we did when we discovered that it was simple was we asked the registrar to take away that word simply. And we created, in effect, a checklist that students could use when they say they want to withdraw from all their classes. So literally, we worked with IT. And when students click drop, drop, drop their classes and hit submit, then it popped up 
a checklist in the system that they would register in. And it said, wait, have you considered housing, the financial aid impact? You're returning your books. And it went through kind of this 12 or 13 item checklist that we wanted students to be aware of. And I'm going to confess, I think this is a newsflash for anybody that is listening to me now. Students don't always read that kind of stuff. (laughs) So I'm not satisfied that we are doing the job of informing students of these sometimes life-altering decisions because they could be walking away when one easy intervention could change things for them. So what I want is an outtake process. Uh, I want to require students to meet with somebody. And I think that there are some liberal arts institutions that maybe have smaller enrollments in a place like EKU that do that and do that well. And I want to learn from them. I want to be able to talk to them and figure out what is it you do when a student says, I'm leaving the university. And I want to implement that in some version here so that I can talk to those students who are going to melt in those opening weeks, or somebody can talk to those students that are going to melt in the opening weeks. And we can just make sure that they know what the impact of that is. Because I think a lot of times, and I've been an advisor for many, many years, a lot of times we we have people who can get to the problem behind the problem and help students kind of figure out what's really going on. And that's an opportunity that we have not seized to this point. So that's what we need to be doing, but it is not what we're doing yet. But check back with us in a year, and I hope that's um, fully part of our process. Have you seen any positive impact by making it harder to drop courses? Yeah, I would say yes. We don't stop students that want to drop from dropping. But what we do, and I say this all the time around this campus, is that we're kind of like machine learning all the time too. Because what we want to do is find out from students what is causing them to drop and then apply that knowledge to students in similar situations in the future. So we may not be able to retain that student, but we know that next semester there's going to be four other students in a similar situation. So if we can plan that intervention earlier, for example, a student is homesick. If we can figure out how to help with a student's homesickness earlier, then we're going to keep those students from reaching that same point of withdrawal. So it's almost like you have an indirect goal. You theoretically had hoped to keep those students and retain them. Absolutely. But what's really happened as the outcome is that you've just learned. You've learned lessons for the future. And applied. Yeah. And so we have students in the future that, that benefit from that student's attrition. You use a couple of student surveys, you use some metrics to gauge student success. Tell us about them and what interventions do you use and what do the metrics and surveys do to indicate when help is needed? Yeah, you're probably being generous in saying we use a couple of surveys because we are we are risking survey fatigue, I think, with our students. We ask them, I guess the easy way to say is we ask them how they're doing all the time, how things are going all the time. And we are we're not as strategic with it as I think we could be. We're, we kind of just shoot widely and hope that students will respond. But we do. We start in the first few weeks of the semester. We ask how things are going. And then we look for ways to respond. We look for ways to intervene based on their responses. Sometimes we ask them how things are going in class. Like we will give students, first semester students, a diagnostic that you know asks about their confidence in things like time management and study skills and working with other people and uh, seeking help when they need it. And when students 
indicate a lack of confidence in those areas, we have advisors and instructors of those first year courses that can intervene. Other surveys or check-ins happen outside of class. In the third week, we check in with students and we ask them how things are going. We ask them, are you going to class? How many classes have you missed? And we ask, is there any help you need? And we give them a list of seven or eight different things that we could potentially help with. And then depending on their answers, we connect students to resources, could be tutoring, could be meeting with their advisor about a class, could be something like that. The following week, we do progress reports. A lot of universities and colleges use an early alert system we call our fourth week progress reports. But one thing we do with that is it's simply a satisfactory or unsatisfactory. Every instructor participates. We're proud that we had 98% participation in fourth week progress reports this fall. But one thing we do with those is we compare students' third week survey responses telling us how things are going to their fourth week progress reports. Because, and this is this sounds like a loaded word, we want to identify students who are delusional. Students who tell us everything's going great and then they get nothing but unsatisfactory progress reports. We want to identify those because the intervention for them might need to be a little bit different than just, hey, let's get you to tutoring. It might need to be some expectation setting, reevaluating what progress looks like at that point. And the beauty of, a, of an early alert is there's still time to do that kind of thing. And then at midterm, we get to do the same thing and we align midterm data, those estimated GPAs, those grades per class. We align that with progress reports and also with student responses to those opening week check-ins. And then we do a last uh, kind of end of the semester check-in as well. Uh, we, we just, again, send that out widely, hope for a good response rate, and then try to decide um, which pieces of the student's response are statistically significant and can be kind of applied to the wider student body. We get, you know, good response, but not great response to that one. But it does give us information there right before finals that kind of gives us a sense of where students think they stand. You mentioned survey fatigue. Yeah. If you had to pick, let's say, one, two, or three of the surveys to continue going forward with next semester or years beyond, which ones would you choose? Which ones have the most valuable info? Yeah, well, I think that early semester one, of course, is important because it gives us that chance to intervene early when there's still time to turn things around. That's really important. What what I think we need to be able to do is be able to follow up strategically with those students who confess that things are not going well, because those are the students who are either not getting engaged or finding themselves in over their heads really early. And so those are the ones, like if students tell us everything's going great and then their midterm grades bear that out and they have all A's and B's, they may not need us to follow up with them. But if we could be more strategic and really kind of continue the conversation with students who um, tell us things aren't going well and then we see evidence that is so, then we probably can help some of those students persist when you know we've otherwise kind of let them sink or swim. When students self-identify as having specific issues or troubles or obstacles that they're facing, are the responses that they receive for resources and help and support, are those automated or are they individually triaged? I'm wondering about manpower. Yep. And and it does require some manpower. And it is at some point an inefficient 
system because it does require we've just literally a couple of people to receive those responses and then push them along to an intervention team. So that might be a tutoring team. It might be the director of our student success center. It might be an advisor, but they have to kind of filter by advisor to do that work. So yeah, it is work on a couple of people. Automated sounds great, but we would have to outsource that. And as a regional university, we do a lot of things on a shoestring budget. And so, you know, I it's we've rationalized, I guess, that it's better to stretch the two or three people that can be involved in that work than it is to to outsource that and you know and take on that additional financial responsibility. And that's always kind of a, a bargain you're having to make. Share with us some of the ongoing interventions that you're using to keep students enrolled. I know you mentioned a few at the conference. Yeah, well, there are numerous, that's for sure. And uh, at the conference, I talked about things like retention grants. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of institutions will use that kind of just-in-time scholarshiping to help students stay in school. We certainly do that. Um, we have uh, you know a variety of other interventions, some for relatively high-achieving students, some for students at risk of going on probation or suspension, some students that you know, are floundering socially or otherwise, certainly some that are floundering financially, I guess, too. But you know, the truth is, I guess I could paint some of this with a broader brush. Most students don't need retention intervention. At most universities, most students do what they're supposed to. And that's true at EKU also. Most students register for classes when they're supposed to register for classes. Most students go to class. They get good enough grades. They avoid, you know, academic troubles. They pay their tuition. They meet with their advisor when they're supposed to. You know, they do the things we want them to do. It's a minority of students that we spend a lot of our time and effort focusing on. But at a place like EKU, that that's consistent with our mission. We call ourselves a school of opportunity. And we give students the opportunity to succeed, and then we give them the support they need in order to do that. So these retention interventions are available. That's probably the best word to use. Available to students to make use of, but most of them aren't forced on students because we want to give them the opportunity to make use of them. So that said, retention grants. Students have to seek out retention grants. Those are meant to bridge the gap between where students are financially and where they need to be in order to register for classes. We have a uh, what we call a campus resource access flipbook. It's kind of a long name there, but what we wanted to do was bridge the gap for students and advisors between where they are in terms of campus awareness of resources. And, and in truth, that's not unique to students. It's not even unique to first-generation students. Many of our faculty advisors and faculty members don't know what resources are available on campus. So we created what we call a flipbook that is readily available for advisors and for faculty members. We had IT push it to every desktop on campus. So it's there as a document on their desktop. So when a student's sitting there and they get to the problem behind the problem with an advisor or a faculty member and say, hey, class is going fine, but I need a job. Well, there's a tab in that flipbook that takes them. Here's where you go. Here's who you contact to. The flipbook has a QR code so students can like take a picture of it and go right to the website and apply for a job, a campus job right there. There's a flipbook 
page for every resource we could put together. So, you know, those are just examples of how we try to connect students to the interventions, but we just make them available. And I I do think that's the best word we can use. Kind of like school of opportunity, we give them the opportunity and then they, they have to choose to make use of it. And that's what we want is to be strategic enough to get the right students making use of the right resources at the right time. So this flipbook sounds like essentially an electronic shortcut to find help and resources for students that they may or may not pertain directly to academic in the classroom experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the initiatives, I I maybe should have mentioned it earlier, but it's one of the initiatives that grew out of the First Gen Task Force. I think it was University of Michigan years ago, I mean, like four or five years ago, probably, I saw where, and it's still available online somewhere, but it's a basically how to do U of M when you're poor is the name of the book. And so it's all these hacks and it's a student created text a Google document, a student-created text that is all of these hacks for getting around University of Michigan on a budget. And so that was kind of our inspiration for how do we make that kind of information, not just how to do it when you're poor, but how do we make that readily available for students and for those that want to help students? Another intervention that I heard you speak about previously was for students who may be trying to withdraw and you have a recruit back process. Can you tell us about this recruit back process? Yeah, it's not really for students who who actively want to withdraw. It's for students who passively don't register for classes, don't engage. And so they're, they're the greatest withdrawal risks without going through the deliberate steps to withdraw. So recruit back is simply when all, and we could, we actually are starting that, you know, in earlier and earlier all the time, because we know which students are registering and when they are registering. And when they don't register on time, then we start reaching out to them and saying, hey, you, you aren't graduating this semester. Your grades are fine. Your midterm grades are fine. Your final grades were fine when the time comes for that. And you haven't registered. So is there anything going on that I can help with? And we have advisors do that in terms of an email or a text message or a phone call. We have some colleges on campus that will send a postcard and say, hey, they like postcards because you know a parent may check the mail and say, wait, you're not registered. But that email or that postcard will simply say, hey, we see you're not registered yet. Here's my office phone number. Give me a call. I can help you with anything you might need. And we identify a lot of problems that way. We identify a lot of students who say, yes, I'd like to come back, but here's why I can't. And we never know, this this is the easiest way to say it, Sarah, we never know who's going to respond to what and when. And so we try to be available when those students will raise their hand and say, I'm glad you asked what's going on because here's what I need. And the, the reciprocity of that, us pouring into students, selflessly in some cases saying, hey, we want to help. We want to help you get where you want to go. That That's a hard pull for some of my colleagues because once students get their feet under them, then they don't look back. They make good progress. They reach graduation. They don't look back and say thanks because they're just busy going about their lives. But it's the work that we've kind of been called into doing, and, and we see the value in it, and we, we know that there is value in it. We know that it, that it benefits the university, but also benefits students. I want to make sure our listeners caught that. You talked about this group of students who are passively disengaged. They have missed the registration window, and you called them the greatest withdraw risk. So that's the group we should put our 
efforts into, right? It is, but they're also, you know, historically, maybe I don't say historically, but they're often the, the least responsive because once they kind of step away from the university, it's hard to get them to step back in. So the ones, and the difference, the difference is the ones who actively withdraw, they have classes, they go in, they drop other classes. That is a, a deliberate step. They have made a decision and they are acting decisive. These students that we try to recruit back, they are the ones who, who are passive in this because they don't really know where to turn. They, for example, we have to have, students have to have a balance or a student account balance under $1,000 in order to register for the next semester's classes. So we may have students that have an account balance of $1,300. So if they pay $301, then they can register for classes next semester and continue their education. But for some students, $301 might as well be $300,000. And so they're hopeless. And so our outreach is designed to say, hey, there is a path for you to continue your education. If you're on probation, that's not the end of the world. If you need $301, that's not the end of the world. We can help you get where you're trying to go. And I say this all the time, and I I don't disparage other universities, but we don't get any student that comes to EKU that doesn't want to graduate. We don't get any student that comes here that just says, I'm going to try college. I think there are a lot of community and technical colleges that get students like that. I'm just going to try some, some school. I think there are a lot of universities and elite liberal arts institutions where it's taken for granted that students are going to be successful and just make their way through to graduation. Our students want to graduate. They just don't often know the path. And so when they run into that withdrawal risk of needing to be recruited back, it's because they've reached a crisis point, but they don't know how to define it. And so that's where we have this network across all six of our colleges. And for exploratory students, that's what we call undeclared. Uh, We have university advising uh, offices that will help in that moment and help those students kind of diagnose the problem behind the problem and find a solution where students wouldn't necessarily know there is one. Well, I really appreciate you talking about some of these interventions that you're using to make, you know, bridge the difference between where students are and where they need to be successful. But I'm guessing that there's a few interventions that you've tried that haven't worked. Tell us about those. Tell us what we should not try to replicate. I don't know that that's even the, I don't know that it's what we should try versus what we shouldn't try. I think it's more of the mindset of being willing to try new things all the time. Because, and you know, we might, in this moment, we might be able to define some of these interventions as pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, if we can call it post-pandemic, that's this moment we're in now. The things that used to work don't always work now. Students have realized after the pandemic that, that they want flexibility in their class schedule, that they can do things by Zoom instead of in person, that they, you know, they can can kind of come and go. Class attendance is a problem in ways that it wasn't before the pandemic uh, here at EKU and I think a lot of places nationally. There are students that received CARES funding and, and federal support that they chose to use to pay for their tuition and now they don't have access to that. And, you know, there are there are just a lot of variations, I think, that exist now that didn't exist before the pandemic. And students are aware of some of those, but they also expect us to be aware of some of those. And I think, so I think that's the best answer to your question is it's not what has worked and what doesn't work. It's a mindset that used to prevail in even retention work and a mindset that has to prevail now. 
Tia Brown McNair wrote a book, she and some other authors collaborated to write a book called Becoming a Student-Ready College. And I love the theme of that book, which is it's not on the students anymore to be ready for college. It's on the college to be ready for the students that are arriving. Because if students are saying, I want some of my classes in person and some of my classes online, or I don't want to go to class five days a week, or you know whatever it is, we have to be responsive to that because they're going to end up leaving us to go somewhere that will let them do that. And we'll let them do that without sacrificing the quality of education. Because that's often the pushback we get is people sitting back, folding their arms and saying, well, that's not how we do things here. Well, students don't understand that. So we have to kind of bring them along to where they appreciate what we do. But we also have to be responsive to do things the way students need us to do them. Uh, my example of uh, of students no longer reading that pop-up checklist is a prime example. You know, students vote with their feet. And so we have to be responsive to that. And if we're not, we're going to be left behind. Completely agree. I want to shift into the role of technology. You collect a lot of data. You're very data-informed but you don't use a product that we could buy in the open market for your retention work. You actually worked with your IT department to create a homegrown technology tool. Can you tell us about it a little bit? Sure. And I guess there's two answers to that question because I confess, and this is, I guess, if it's a product endorsement, it may be, but we do use Slate, which is a CRM tool that our admissions and enrollment management team uses. But we took Slate and we adapted it for for a new purpose uh, for continuing students. And we have, we've been very innovative in the way we use it. But that's the other part of your question. We started building, I guess, what we call the loop before we had Slate as a campus resource. And what we call the loop is this IT platform that is advisor facing and collects actionable student information. Anything that a that an advisor would need to know in advance of meeting with a student or when meeting with a student or in providing intervention for a student, essentially that wraparound support that we expect from an advisor. That tool was created so that advisors would have it at their fingertips. We did not want something that was what I call a dead end, where advisors would have to stop what they're doing, go into this tool, do some work, and then go back into their lives. So by working with IT, we could put it right there at their fingertips. My model for this, Sarah, is I was a high school teacher before I moved to the college level many years ago now. When we had a problem student, then the principal or the administration would get the teachers of that student together. We'd sit around a table and we would hash out what we're going to do to help this student, what we're going to do to intervene. There is no model for that in higher education. Now, in extreme cases, it goes to the dean of students or it goes to campus security or whatever it is. But I'm not talking about that kind of case. I'm talking about retention risks. I'm talking about students who uh, are on borderline probation or borderline suspension. There was We had nothing that would let people who had a vested interest, a shared interest in that student to communicate about that student. And so we created what we call the loop to provide that wraparound support. And then when we adopted Slate and started adapting it to a variety of purposes, we moved the loop into the Slate platform and we've got advisors all over campus using it, faculty advisors, professional advisors. They're using it for referrals to other campus services. They're using it to make notes on students. Uh, it's not a student-facing platform. Uh, so we we have it and we have a great resource there for collecting information about students and sharing information about students with other people who want to see that student succeed too. 
I'm imagining there's some listeners who work on retention efforts, whether it's through a committee or perhaps part of their responsibilities, but their institution might not have the same infrastructure that you've worked to build in the last few years. Where would you recommend they start if they wanted to build infrastructure or start putting some of these tools and techniques into place? Where would you recommend they start? Well, I think it depends on how seriously you want to take retention efforts. But I think, you know, all of the change management, change leadership, even crisis management literature says that you have to over-communicate. And I think that's the place to start. It just takes a person or a group of people on a campus who aren't going to accept silos that have traditionally defined campus life. We have to have a group that says, I know I'm in this division or this area of the university, but if retention matters, then we're going to make sure that everyone across campus is informed about retention initiatives, retention progress, uh, whether or not we're meeting goals. You're going to have to get people involved in setting those goals and then tracking those goals and talking about those interventions that are possible. You know, simply what could we do is a worthwhile question, but you have to have that conversation with people all across the university. You referenced our infrastructure here at EKU. My position, Assistant Vice President for Retention and Graduation, is in our Student Success Division. So our Student Success Engagement and Opportunity Vice President is my supervisor. We're not in academic affairs. This position often rests in academic affairs. Now, we're fortunate because we have a great working relationship with academic affairs. I can work with the deans. I was an interim dean last year. That certainly helped in that work. We work well with department chairs and faculty advisors. But if we just said, oh, well, we'll do this work despite academic affairs, then we would not get any traction for retention efforts. So what we do is we do a retention report. When it's retention season, we do a retention report and we communicate that all across campus. Vice presidents get it, deans get it, department chairs get it. They get this message that says, here's where we stand in retention. Here's what we're looking like for next semester. And then I highlight for them, here are some of the gains we've made since last year. Here are some of the gaps we're seeing. And then occasionally, because I I went to communicate the right things at the right time, I will say, here's what we're trying to close this gap. Here's a success we've had, and here's a growth area. Here's how you can help. So that over-communicating is important. Just like I said with students, it's true of our colleagues. We don't know who's paying attention to what and when. And so I try to over-communicate. I've gotten other people to over-communicate so that we're all pulling the same direction. I absolutely love what you said. Don't accept silos. Retention work has to be cross-functional. You have to have the relationships with your coworkers. You have to have it intentionally situated within the right house or unit of your institution. And for you, it's student success. I think those are such key takeaways for our listener is to think about how cross-functional retention work is. I agree. All right. So as we wrap up, Gil, I want you to share your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution. It certainly could be related to retention, but it does not have to be. Well, I'll, I guess I'll keep it retention focused. And that is to say, I I know that your podcast, Sarah, is focused on business and there is a business angle to retention. Retention efforts cost money, but there's also a return on that investment. And I think that investment has to be seen in the immediate but also in the longer term. 
And, and I'm embarrassed to say we've made it through this entire conversation and we haven't once used the word engagement in the right way as a synonym for retention. Because when we're talking about retention efforts, what we're really talking about is student engagement because we want students to be engaged with the process of learning, the process of growing as a college student, the process of building affinity for the institution. Because ultimately, retention efforts are designed not just with the immediate return of let's keep students involved, engaged, registered for next semester, making progress toward their toward graduation and their career. Ultimately, retention efforts are designed to build an affinity for the university that, what, five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, they're going to be the kind of alumni that want to support the university. Maybe they support it by sporting their university colors on a, you know, on a Friday, coming to a football game, whatever it might be. Or maybe they're picking up the phone when the development office calls and you know, kind of supporting it that way. I was interim dean of the College of Education and Applied Human Sciences last year, and I thought a lot about how we develop teachers at a place like EKU that then go into our regional classrooms and educate the students that are going to be attending EKU in the future. So our investment now in students' success and our assurances now that students can get engaged on campus have this payoff that could come 15, 18, 20, 25 years down the road. But I think that's how we have to think about this kind of thing. EKU has been here for a long time, 100 plus years. A lot of universities have a long history. And we have to kind of operate knowing that we're not just trying to make it to next semester and retention is the difference in whether or not we make it, but we're going to be here for a long time still. And we want people to be kind of walking billboards for the work we do. I love that idea of playing the long game, that it's more than just keep them on for their second year of school, but rather, yeah, create true engagement and meaning in their lives and that they can turn around and it can be a very mutually beneficial relationship. Well, Gil, thank you so much for being here today. I'm sure some of our listeners are going to reach out to you, learn more about your work as a retention specialist. So I'll be sure to include your LinkedIn in our show notes. Thank you so much. Yeah, please do. I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Take care. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.